You're listening to the Grace Point Northwest podcast. We hope that you will be encouraged and built up in your relationship with Jesus as you hear the preaching and teaching of God's Word. If Grace Point Northwest is not your home church, it is our heart that this podcast will be supplemental and not a substitute to you belonging to a local church in your community. If we can help you get connected to a church in your community, please let us know. And we hope you enjoy this message from our Sunday gathering. Now this morning we're going to be continuing our series called Am I a Disciple? But what is a disciple? What does it even mean? Well, a disciple is just simply a learner and a follower, but a disciple is not somebody who learns and follows someone just to know a bunch of facts about them, but rather a disciple is someone who learns and follows in order to be like the person they're following. And as followers of Jesus, you and I are called to live like him, not to earn anything, but because of the new identity he's given us. Think about it kind of like this. For 21 years of my life, I lived as a bachelor. And as a bachelor, I picked up some pretty bad habits. For instance, the, the sink, I don't know what that was. It's a preschooler pressing the intercom button. So here in a second, we may all just answer and say hello. Oh, it was Tony. It was Tony. All right, cool. Anyway, we'll see if that'll hang up here in a second. So try to stay with me, okay? All right. So think about it kind of... Think about it kind of like this. It's okay, Tony. We still love you. Okay, so think about it kind of like this. For 21 years of my life, I lived as a bachelor, and as a bachelor, I picked up some pretty bad habits. For instance, the sink wasn't made to wash dishes, but the sink was a place for dirty dishes to soak, okay? Laundry baskets weren't for putting laundry in, but for moving stuff. Laundry was go on the end of the bed or onto the floor. The toilet seat always stayed up unless there was a reason for it to go down, And it didn't matter how toilet paper went on the roll as long as it came off, okay? But on July 14, 2001, that all changed because I was given a new identity. You see, that was the day I married my wife, Jess. That day, I went from a bachelor to a what? A husband. And when I moved into a husband, I I came with new desires, if you will, new things I did. Because when I got into a relationship with my wife, it radically changed me. You see, I started to learn that dishes went into the sink so they could be washed or rinsed to put into the dishwasher. I learned that laundry goes in the basket and that bed is for sleeping and walking is for floors, right? Like that's what it is. I also learned that the toilet seat stays down all the time. No excuses. It's always down. And I learned there's a particular way the toilet paper is supposed to come off from the top down, not the bottom up. You see, my relationship with my wife changed me in significant ways over the past 18 years. I got new behaviors, new desires, a new focus. No longer can I just focus on myself, but now I focus on her. And with three kids, I focus on them as well. But it's important for you to know that this change wasn't instantaneous, but it was gradual. Just last week, we were in her hospital room. She got up to go use the bathroom, and she came back laughing. And when I asked her what was so funny, she goes, even in my own hospital room, I got to put the seat down. I was like, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm still learning. You see, this morning, Paul wants to tell us that just as my relationship with Jess has changed me in significant ways over the years, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you're in a relationship with Jesus, that relationship should change you in significant ways too. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter, Ephesians, from prison in Rome to a church in Ephesus that he started. Now, the city of Ephesus was a huge cosmopolitan area. It was known for witchcraft, magic, and paganism. And the people that filled up this church were rescued out of a life of witchcraft, paganism, and idolatry by Jesus. That is why Paul writes to encourage them to live as changed disciples of Jesus. 
No longer are they to be known for witchcraft, magic, and paganism. Now they're supposed to be known as disciples of Jesus by living like Jesus. Now it's important for you and I to understand this. We are jumping right into the middle of this letter. And there is nothing that Paul is going to tell us here this morning that we have to do to earn anything. Rather, what Paul has told us already in this letter through chapters 1 through 3 is that Jesus has done everything. Listen to what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. It should be up here on the screen. Here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, what? Created in Christ Jesus do good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. When you read here in Bibles, it's important to know there are things called indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives are just simply things that have been done. That is what is. Imperatives are things you must do. That is what will be. And what does Paul say the indicative is in this verse? That you and I are saved by what? By grace, through faith, not of works. What that means is you and I do not become disciples of Jesus by what we do. Rather, you and I become disciples of Jesus by what he has done through his perfect life, through his substitutionary death, and through his glorious resurrection. And I will argue this. If you don't believe in that, you can do nothing Paul is talking about in chapter 4. And here's the reason why. Think about it. When did my behavior change with my wife? Before I was married or after? After. I was given a new identity. Why did I follow the rules on the soccer team? Because I was put on the team. I didn't follow them before I was put on the team. And first, you and I must be disciples of Jesus by his grace. And as a result, we live as disciples by his grace. When it comes to the Christian life, being always precedes doing. It's not you do and you belong. It's what Jesus has done, you belong. And in light of that and his power, now you start to joyfully do for his glory and your joy. And with that in mind, that is why Paul writes Ephesians 4, 17. He's telling these Christians, in light of this new identity you have been given in Jesus, this is how you are to live. Listen to what he says in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul tells us here that what he is sharing is not by his authority alone. No, it also comes with the authority of who? Jesus. And don't miss this point. Everything Paul is going to be telling us here comes with his authority as well as equally the authority of Jesus. This is not just how Paul sees the world. What he is about to describe is also how Jesus sees the world too. So how do both Paul and, what do both Paul and Jesus say? They simply say this. Disciples of Jesus are to quit living as if they don't know God. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are to stop living like you don't know God. Think about it. What word does he use here that you and I are to walk? You see, when we talk about our walk, many of us think of our stride or our strut, but that's not Paul at all. What Paul is talking about is he's using it as a metaphor to talk about the direction of your life. That is the way you live. He's talking about what is on the your actions, both on the inside as well as the outside. Many of us have heard the old uh, Aerosmith Run DMC song, Walk This Way, right? You think about that, you kind of got the idea. What do they say over and over again? Walk this way, talk this way, walk this way, talk this way. And that is what is Paul saying. He's describing how you and I are to live our lives daily. And why does he say this? Why does he tell us to stop living as if we don't know God? To quit living like non-Christian people live? Listen, 
Brennan Manning says something like this. Listen to what he writes. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Francis Collin, in his book, The Language of God, talks about Voltaire writing against the French Catholic Church. And he basically says this, because during the French Revolution, listen to what he says, what Voltaire says. Is it any wonder that there are atheists in the world when the church behaves so abominably? Do you see why Paul tells disciples of Jesus, stop living this way? Those who are in relationship with Jesus are changed by Jesus. Nobody comes into a relationship with Jesus and then goes on living like things used to be. Nobody comes into a relationship with Jesus and goes on living like nothing has changed. Just like my relationship with my wife radically changed me, substantially changed me, the moment you come into a relationship with Jesus, the moment you become one of his disciples, that radically changes who you are. You start to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, think like Jesus. Essentially what Paul says, walk like Jesus. But how do Gentiles walk? How did we used to walk before Jesus came into our lives? Paul describes this and he talks about it by describing our inner world. Listen to what he says in verses 17b through 18. Should be up on the screen. It says it like this. In the futility of their minds, they were darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. Think of the words Paul uses here. Futility, dark and alienated, ignorance and hardness. It's almost as if Paul is giving you and me a trajectory. And where does this trajectory go? It goes downward. He says very simply that we lived in the futility of our minds. That is, we lived with futile minds, our capacity to think, plan, and make moral judgments. Several years ago, I got into a conversation at a group in which there was just a very intense argument that took place. And it seemed like nobody was going to agree. One guy in the group was just arguing that he was right. Then all of a sudden, somebody in the group pointed out how he was wrong and how he was right. And then somebody in the group just yelled out at the top of their lungs, you shouldn't let anybody tell you what to do. And when I heard those words, I couldn't help myself. I just kindly said, Did you, did, didn't you just do the very thing you told them not to do? And it didn't go very well. You see, there was no agreed upon sense of right, wrong, or purpose. Everyone was just doing what was right in their own eyes, and it ended up being meaningless. We live in a culture and a society today where we are told there is no meaning, there is no purpose. If you want meaning and purpose, you have to create it. You create your own meaning. But my question is always this. What if the meaning I create for my life goes against somebody else? Or what if it harms somebody else? Who wins? Who's right? You see, it's meaningless. It's futile. It doesn't make sense. It's exhausting. But we're not just futile in our thinking. Paul says we're also darkened in our understanding of what God has done, his gospel. And we're separated from God because of the ignorance and the hardness of our hearts. And it's not like you and I are innocent in this condition either. In a parallel passage, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, this should be up on the screen, it says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. All of us in this room, before Jesus comes into our lives, are like a young boy playing with a jack-in-the-box. Many of us have seen a jack-in-the-box before. You turn the little lever, play some music, and out pops who? Jack. And so that's what the boy does. He sits down with the jack-in-the-box. He's excited. He's turning the lever. He loves the music. And then out pops Jack, and he screams. 
But what does the boy love? He loves the music. He loves turning the handle. What doesn't he love? Jack popping out of the box. And so what does he do? He just puts his hand on it. I'm sure I'm not the only one that did that. And you turn the music. Dun, 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 like whatever. That sounds like the Wicked Witch of the West. But anyway, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, like you turn the handle. You hear the music. You're enjoying it. And then Jack tries to pop out. And what are you doing? You just suppress it. That's what all of us were doing before Jesus. The world was crying out, I made, God made me. And we're just have our hand on the box. Ken Hughes says it like this. Maybe this makes more sense to you. He says it like this. They hold down the truth much like a little boy who smuggled his dog into a room to spend the night. And when we heard his parents approaching, he put the dog in his toy box, sat on the lid, and talked with the parents, ignoring the repeated thumps of the poor pet. You see, many of us, like that boy with that dog, are living in this world. We're enjoying it. We're turning the handle. We're enjoying the music. But as soon as it wants to pop out, God made me, we put our hand on the lid and we suppress the truth. And the more you and I suppress the truth, the harder and harder our hearts become. That's what Paul talks about next. Listen to what he says in verse 19. They become callous and, give, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. If what we heard wasn't bad enough, Paul continues to describe our condition before Jesus. He does so by saying we're what? We're calloused. What is a callous? What does that mean? It's a bunch of dead skin that has no feeling. Many of us in this room, we have calluses on our fingers. We have calluses on our feet. And then when we look at that, that's what it's supposed to describe our hearts are like before God. Instead of worshiping God, we have willfully exchanged the worship of God for the worship of self. How so? Well, instead of loving God, we have decided to love ourselves by giving ourselves over to practicing things that bring God dishonor. I can't help but to think of the story in Luke chapter 15 of the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you have heard this. It should be the parable of the prodigal sons because there are actually two sons in the story that are alienated from the father. But oftentimes what we remember is the younger one who goes to his dad. Before his dad is dead, he walks up to his dad and he demands his inheritance which is a huge offense in that culture to the father. It's basically looking at the dad and saying, I know you're alive, but you're practically dead to me. I don't want you, I just want your stuff. And so what does the father do? He lets the son go. And that's what God did to us. Creation is declaring, God made me, and we respond, I don't care. And so what does God do? He lets us go. He lets us go to practice every kind of impurity. We're like the son in Luke 15 that walks away. Now, we tend to practice what we most love, do we not? When I was a kid, you can see I've got a shirt on right now. What's it say? Kentucky. I thought I was going to play for the University of Kentucky. They won yesterday, so I wear the shirt. But when I was a kid, I used to go outside till 10, 11 o'clock at night, and I would practice basketball. And if I didn't like the sound of the swish and it went through the net, I would start my routine all over of a layup, a mid-range jumper, a free throw, a three-pointer, three-pointer, free throw, mid-range jumper, left-hand layup. I still remember it. Why? I loved it. My mom did not have to tell me, go out there and shoot a basketball. And that's what Paul is saying here, is you and I, we love this, we love sin, we love these things that dishonored God. We went to them hoping to find satisfaction, but, but they oftentimes left us, left us wanting. How do we know this? He says, what was our motive behind it? Greed. Greedy to practice every type of impurity insatiably longing after these things in this world, hoping that they would totally meet our ultimate desire, only to be left wanting. Many of us in here, we have lived for money. 
right? We love money, and money, money's helpful, but money's a terrible God, absolutely terrible God. And if you were to ask us, how much money is enough, many of us would have responded, oh, just a little bit more, right? And then finally, when we get that money, we get that object, we get that house, what do we end up doing? Man, it was so much easier when we didn't have this. We're never satisfied. We get the house and the picket fence or whatever it is in Las Vegas, but we long for the apartment at the San Maritz off Washington and Tanea. Is that just me? Because life was easier then. We finally get the car, but then the car starts to have problems. We pour money into it. We put a body kit on it. We make it look good. But then your brother wrecks it, and you loathe the car. All of us in this room have taken the good things that God has made. We made them ultimate things. We made them God things. And then they become disastrous things in our lives. And that's why Paul is saying, stop living like that. But what I love about Paul is he doesn't just tell you and me to stop it and then go home, okay? But rather, he tells us how to stop. And he uses one of my favorite words in the Bible, but. Listen to what he says in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned who. Christ. That's not the way you learn Christ. Now, this is absolutely revolutionary. Think about it. Paul just says, this is what you were, futility in mind, alienated from God, dishonoring to God, but, but what? This isn't how you learned Jesus. You haven't learned Jesus this way, but notice, Paul doesn't say, this isn't how you learned about Jesus. He doesn't say this isn't how you learned about that historical figure that lived so long ago. Rather, what what he's saying is this isn't how you learn Jesus now in space and place. What this tells you and me is that Christianity isn't a bunch of do's and don'ts. Christianity is a relationship with a living person, and his name is Jesus. And think about it. Remember when I told you I got married, my wife, the living person, moved into my house, and it radically changed me. In the same way, Peter O'Brien says it like this. It should be on the screen. Listen to this. Learning Christ means welcoming welcoming him as a living person and being shaped by his teaching. You didn't learn about Jesus when you became a disciple. You heard from Jesus, the man himself. How do we know this? Paul says in verse 21, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now, it's important to know that when you read this in the original Greek text, that word about is not there. It was put there to help with the reading. But if you take that word out because it's not there, what does it say? Assuming that you heard who? Him. And what's his name? When in doubt, just say the one word. Jesus. Everybody gets 100, okay? What does that mean? When you became a disciple of Jesus, you did so not just merely hearing about him from another person, but rather, you were hearing from him personally when you became a Christian. Last week, I told you, in 1995, I became a Christian. Durango, Colorado, I was in a dorm room. I was at a youth camp. I, started, I just went because the girl I was dating broke up with me, so I went there just to find a new girl, pizza and basketball and all that. My dad went there on a trip as, a, as the leader, and I remember he walked the like, socks with the flip-flops, which I hear that's coming back. But I remember he pulled me into his dorm room and he sat down and he shared the gospel with me what had to be for the hundredth time. And in that moment, by God's grace, he opened my heart to see Jesus as beautiful, not just as my savior, but as my Lord. And in that moment, who was I hearing? Was I hearing Gary Fox? Yes. 
But who is speaking to me personally, Paul is saying? Jesus. When you hear the Bible rightly preached, you hear from a preacher, sure, but you're also hearing from Jesus too. When you're in community group and somebody is teaching from the Bible, rightly teaching from the Bible, and you are blown away by it, are you hearing from that person? Yes, but who are you hearing from too? Jesus. You're hearing Jesus personally. When you become a disciple of Jesus, you are not just hearing how to do so from a person. You are hearing from Jesus himself. And don't misunderstand, Jesus is both the subject, but he's also the teacher. That's who you are hearing. You see, it wasn't my father, Gary, who saved me. I'm thankful for my father and his faithfulness to share the gospel with me and not give up on me, even though I had a really hard head and a really calloused heart, and he kept coming. But it wasn't Gary who saved me. When you look in Ephesians 2, 1 through 17, listen to these verses as I read them and see if you can find the name Gary in there, okay? Just curious. Let's go. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh. Sound like the futility of our mind? Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, practicing impurity. And were by nature children of wrath by the rest of mankind. But God, God love the big butts of the Bible, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. What did he do? Because he loved us. What did he do? Because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. What does Paul say I was dead in? My sins. Sin does not make you and me bad, mistaken. Sin makes us dead. And who does Paul say in those verses made me alive? God. You see, Jesus hasn't come to make you good, moral, and right. Jesus has come to make you from death to life, to make dead, calloused hearts, we just read it, beat alive with love for him. Now, where was Gary's name in that text? It was nowhere. Who did this? God. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. My father was important. You and I are called to tell other people about Jesus. The point is, Gary is the one who told me about Jesus, but Jesus is the one I heard from and saved me. That is why when you become a disciple of Jesus, it's not about what you do and don't do. It's about what, who you've heard from. And when you've heard from Jesus, you will follow Jesus. You will follow in his teachings. You will submit to his teachings. You will joyfully do that because you understand he took you from being dead to making you alive. And that is life-changing. You see, Paul talks about this in, four, in chapter 4, verse 22. He uses the, the analogy of clothes. Listen to what he says. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupted through deceitful desires. What has Jesus taught us to do? To put off our old life. To put off our old life that is corrupted through deceitful desires. The images of changing clothes. The idea is an old, dirty garment and throwing it away to never pick it up. And when you and I see what our life was like before Jesus, and all that it was, we no longer want it. We're disgusted by it. Why? We have new desires. When I was a bachelor, my desire was for myself, okay? That's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to do dishes. I didn't want to do laundry. 
I didn't care if they were on the bed or on the floor. Toilet seat, it didn't matter. But when I got into a relationship with her, it changed everything. Why? I got new desires. I started to put dishes in the sink, putting clothes in the basket, putting the seat down. Why? I love her. I love her. And a relationship changes. You see, I repented, if you will, of my life of being a bachelor. And to repent doesn't mean we just cry out to God for forgiveness. To repent means yes and amen. We cry out to God, but we also change directions. And that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You not only ask for forgiveness and for his grace, but you also change directions. That's why the Brennan Manning quote should never be said of a Christian. The Voltaire quote should never be said of a Christian. Why? Because a disciple of Jesus is one who cries out to him for forgiveness, but is also one who changes direction, turning from that sin to follow him. Martin Luther is the one who I believe said this, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life is to be one of repentance. It's not like you and I repent once at the beginning of our relationship with Jesus and go, okay, we're good. We repent all the time. As we grow as disciples of Jesus, we will see there are things in our lives that don't align with him. And when we discover those things, we cry out to him forgiveness, but then we change directions. Think about it kind of like this. Think of that person in your community group that person in your classroom, that person in your family, maybe that person at work that really, really annoys you, okay? You got them in your mind? What do you wanna do to them? No, don't answer that. But, But just think of that person that really, really, really annoys you. Why do they annoy you? Why is it? Could it be there is something in your life you need to repent of? Maybe there's an unloving attitude. Maybe there's bitterness. Maybe there's jealousy. The one thing is I have discovered since 15 years of age of walking with Jesus, the one thing I've discovered is difficult people, problems, and situations don't put anything into my heart that is not already there. What do they do? They have a way of exposing what is there. And in the same way, because you love Jesus, he will continually expose those things in your life that are robbing you from the joy you could have in him. And he's crying out to us, calling to us to repent and to turn and to follow him. And the question is, what is it in your life right now you need to turn from? Don't worry about being a disciple that has to be perfect. Why? Jesus has perfection covered. But what we should be doing is progressing, growing more and more like him, loving like him, living like him, thinking like him, walking like him. For his glory, but also, I promise you, for your joy, for your joy. And what I love is Paul doesn't just tell us what to take off, but he tells us what to put on and what to transform. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Where are we to be renewed? In our minds. Paul says that disciples of Jesus allow God to change their minds about things. Think about it. Every stolen item, every deceitful action, every hurtful word was first a what? A thought. And earlier, we talked about because our thinking was futile, we started to live and act with these behaviors. In the same way, when we have our minds changed by Jesus about stuff, you and I will start to change to live and walk and love more and more like him. But how do we do this? I think we do this by thinking God's thoughts after him. 
but how do you think God's thoughts after him? It's really old. It's nothing new. Reading the Bible and memorizing the scriptures. Recently, I had a conversation with one of my children uh, who struggles with anger, okay? And my child knew that when I was little, I also struggled with anger. And so as we were driving to school and talking, my child asked me, Dad, what'd you do? How'd you, how'd you change? And I said, well, I had to allow God to change my mind about anger. You see, oftentimes, when I feel angry, God will bring a verse to mind that I memorized when I was little. James 1, 19, what does it say? It'll be up on the screen. It says, know this, beloved brothers, let every person be what? Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Become angry. For a man's anger does what? Does not produce the righteousness of God, or as I remember it, the righteous life that God requires. I heard somebody once tell me that memorized scripture in a Christian life is the kindling that the Holy Spirit looks for to ignite when you're in a difficult problem or situation. And the question you gotta ask yourself is this, how much of the Bible do you have in you? How much kindling, if you will, do you have in your life that when you're facing that difficult trial, that temptation, that the Holy Spirit can ignite to light a fire within you to remind you of whose you are? Do you have the word in you? And is it transforming your mind? You see, it's not enough just to know the word. We're to live it too. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 4, 24. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul has just told us, discard those old clothes, put the new ones on. We're to put on a new self, a new identity, living and loving and thinking and walking like Jesus. But I don't know about you, but when I get new clothes, there's joy and there's difficulty. And here's the reason why. There's joy in some aspects of the new clothes, but there's difficulty in how some of the clothes feel. For instance, some of you that were here a couple of months ago, you might have noticed when I was preaching, I was kind of jumping up and down a little bit, kind of moving like this. You might have thought, what's, tra- what's wrong with Travis? You got to go to the bathroom or whatever? No, that's not the problem. You see, the problem was, is I carry a pen in my pocket and my jeans had a hole in them. And so as I was up here preaching, that, je- that pen went through that hole and was sliding down my leg, distracting me like crazy. And some of you are like, oh, that makes sense, <laughs> Okay. But here's what happened. Every pair of my jeans had a hole in them. So my keys were falling through, chapstick, you know, pen. And so when I'm up here preaching, that was like the last straw. I was like, I do not need a pen sliding down my leg. That's just weird. So my wife went out and she got me some new jeans. Now, when I put those jeans on, I loved them, but it was also difficult. Why? They were great. The pockets were like, good. Nothing's falling through these. But the jeans were a little tight. But what happened the more and more I started wearing the jeans? started to fit. In the same way, when you put on the clothes of Christ, at first it might, feel, it might feel great in some areas, but then in some areas it might feel a little difficult. But what are you called to do? Keep wearing them. They'll eventually fit pretty well. That's what Paul is saying. Keep living in Christ. And what you will find happen is as you are sitting there, in that community group or in that family relationship or at work, and instead of lashing out at that person, you're gonna remember, oh man, I need to repent of that unloving attitude. I need to repent of that bitterness or that jealousy, and you're gonna try that out, and it's gonna feel a little bit awkward, but over time, it becomes more and more natural. 
One of the biggest things that changed my life, pushing me towards Jesus, was when that man, Gary Fox, disciplined me, found out he disciplined me wrongly, and at 15 years of age, walked upstairs into my room and told me he was sorry. Never before have I seen that man apologize for anything. But in that moment when he messed up because he had on the new clothes of Christ, he knew that he had the approval of the only one that mattered, God, which could humble him to do what? To say I'm sorry to his son. Huge impact in my life of me coming to know Jesus because I saw the lordship in his life as something as beautiful that could humble a man like that. See, Paul doesn't want us just to discard old clothing. He also tells us to put on some new ones. And you may find it enjoyable and uncomfortable at times, but over time... It'll fit. And what Paul is saying is keep wearing them. Keep wearing them. You see, to be in a relationship with Jesus, it will change you. It has to. It's an impossibility. It is completely impossible to say, I follow Jesus and your life not change. It's, it's not what he's come to do. Jesus come to save and rescue, but he's also come to change your life. With each day, week, and month, and year, you should find yourself putting off old clothes and putting on new clothes, new behaviors, and new actions. You see, disciples are saved by Jesus, but disciples also submit to Jesus, joyfully trusting him and following him with their lives. Here's the thing. Don't hear me up here saying I got it all together. I left the toilet seat up at the hospital, okay? <laughs> but you know how many times I probably do that to Christ? And what does he do? Why'd I save that one? He doesn't do that. He comes to us. He tells us to repent and to follow him again. One of my favorite texts in all of scripture is John 21. When Peter strikes out, what does Jesus do? He comes to Peter and he says, follow me again. Peter didn't use all of his chances because we serve a God of the second chance, the third chance, and however many chances you need until Christ is formed in you. So keep following him. Let's pray.